The first cut, cut, the first cut, the first cut, cut, first, the first, first cut, cut, cut. Oh, hey there. Hi there. Uh, it's Emily here. We are discussing what podcasts are coming up next. Um, when we were out in LA, we had the pleasure of meeting some amazing Hollywood editors, including uh, Nancy Richardson, who was interviewed by Jeff. Uh, you may know her from such films as uh, Twilight. You've all seen it, don't lie. 13, and The Kids Are All Right. How was that, uh, having a conversation with Nancy? What's she all about? Uh, you know, she's... Uh, she she threatened me. <laughs> she threatened me at night. <laughs> Who point. hasn't? I know, I know, I know. But this was like a surprise. Like She just she just pulled this, uh, this uh, huge... She's like, this is the knife that they used in Crocodile Dundee, and then it was at my throat, and she was like, that's a knife. <laughs> that was a whole, I think it was that's Irish. <laughs> that, that was the Irish. Yeah, this was a Crocodile Dundee. She had a better accent. Alligator O'Reilly. Alligator O'Reilly. Patio furniture. I kind of like your hair. And you're a lawyer. I know nothing about that. Let's oh go back God. and have a potato. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, Nancy. Nancy. Nancy was an awesome... Uh, she's just, you know, she just like... She knows how to get shit done. You know what I'm saying? And she, she has lots of cool stories about cutting these really bizarre films that, uh, you know... Well, yeah, like Twilight versus 13. I mean, that's a, Same completely, director. That's a completely different take on a teenage girl. So yeah. to be able to cut both of those together should yeah, well, be pretty awesome. Yeah, although the vampire baseball sequence in 13 was awesome. But oh, they, right. They that was the, the, that was the common thread. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, that was what the... No, but uh, she was, she was uh, really dynamic, uh, interesting, straight to business, really cool to talk to. All right, so listen to this podcast um, to expand upon what you've seen on crafttrack.com in the cut. I'll just teach you simple cuts to start with. What got you into editing? Um, I went to film school. Yeah. UCLA film school. Uh, wanted to be a director, mm-hmm. as everyone does. Of course. Actually graduated from... UCLA with a short that did very well in festivals, mm-hmm. and I had written a feature script that got optioned right out of film school. So I was one so of those on the road. people that were sort of, sort of like, "There's this fresh thing out of film school," and had a lot of development meetings. Spent actually about six years writing screenplays, uh, and that's when I just said, "I don't want to do this anymore." I didn't I never wanted to be a writer? I wanted to make films. I wanted to direct films, and I wasn't getting any closer to directing them by writing screenplays. Uh, maybe some people do. I That was not what happening, happening right. for me. Right. This was, again, a long time ago. I think it was even harder for women to direct, but it's still hard. So I just decided I was only going to write scripts on spec and only scripts that I was going to direct, and I was going to have to get some kind of day job in the industry, something that I knew how to do. And I knew how to sync dailies from film school. 16 millimeter dailies. No shit. Half of that size. Oh, yeah. And so I got that I got a job syncing dailies at an industrial house where they made management training films and educational films. Exciting stuff. Very exciting stuff. I learned how... (laughs) Phone Skills was the title of one of our films. (laughs) 
when to put a person on hold. Everyone should watch this film, in all honesty. Phone skills. Working with difficult people, which... You could probably screen it today and it'd be like Warhol art. That know? has come in handy, the, the one working, working with the, difficult people. Working with difficult people. Yeah, that. What, what were the lessons of working with difficult people? Oh, that was still very involved. <laughs> has it proven true? Uh, yeah. No, really, on, in all honesty. So anyway, at that company, I went from sinking dailies to cutting sound to supervising the mixes, and then they made me a picture editor. And so mm -hmm. I probably cut 40 of these management training types of films. While Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question. While we can only imagine, and I would imagine, that that would begin, become over time monotonous, annoying... Or you know, just not not challenging creatively. Um, what you must have picked up certain things about structure. Or yeah, and it actually it, it actually wasn't boring. It wasn't boring. Okay. It was. Uh, these were just sort of short films with SAG actors. They you know usually had some sort of voiceover or announcer. The directors were a lot of directors who have went on to make features. Uh, so it was a really pretty good training ground. I learned how to, I learned how to edit. I learned how to edit in 16 millimeter film. I learned how to deal with voiceover. I learned, um, a, a lot of stuff. It, it wasn't boring. It was a very good group of people to work with. Uh, they were very high quality, uh, industrial films. So, uh. So would you say you, you really sort of. I don't know if you experience cut your teeth, but you, you started to grow an appreciation of the craft and the yeah, art of cutting, yeah, of editing. At yeah, that. yeah, I, I did. And, uh, and then I got a job cutting sound on a feature, editing Foley. Uh -huh. And I did that on a few films, and then... And was this great to you know be working more on bigger projects now? Or? Yeah, I mean, cutting... I... I, I did a lot of sound editing. I, for, for a few years after that, I sort of moved between sound and picture in the feature world, editing sound on more of the bigger budget films, and then I would get a job editing a feature, a lower budget feature. Right. So this I was sort of making my union hours right. <laughs> editing sound, and I really consider the sound editing a really good background. Background. Uh, because now I, when I'm cutting a scene, I fill it in with a lot of sound. That's right. sort of second nature to me to understand how that energizes a scene. And is it is putting in the sound? Because I've I've heard different perspectives on this, so I'd like to get yours. Is putting in the sound in the middle of a in the middle of an edit in the middle of a of a pass at, at the at the material? Is it about trying to sell? What you're doing to the viewer, or to, 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 you know, the people you're showing it to, or to yourself, or to the anonymous audience, or is it more about trying to see if that edit really works the minute you put sound in? Well, it's a it's a combination of those things. You uh, movies are what we see and what we hear. Right. Not very many people anymore can look at a rough cut of a picture of a scene and go, that's totally working. And you want to put in music, You, I want to put in music or wind or it depends on what this movie is to evoke the director's vision or what I interpret the director's vision to be. And in, in initially we're, we're editing 
when we're on feature films, we're editing while they're shooting. Yeah. So I'm getting the dailies from day one of the shoot, and I my goal is to have them cut by the next day. And these days, what I do, I don't know what other editors do, but I, I cut the scene, I fill it with sound and music, because I'm basically trying to get feedback from the director on, is this the mood, is this the tone, is this, what do you think of this music? You know, I'll put in temp score, I'll do everything for, in that first cut of that scene, and I'll send it, you know, to the set. And the director looks at it and says, ah, I hated that music, or... Uh, gee, I really thought that was amazing. Or, or you know, some days I hear, I'll hear back from the producer going, yeah, we all saw that scene on the set. When the director really is just for the director. They shouldn't be showing it to anybody else at that point. Or it's up to them. I am not allowed to show it to anybody else except the director. So, have, you ever, have you ever gotten violent on a director for showing it to other people, like physically? No, it's not, it's up to him. I'm saying you he, can you can be honest about it. You can no, I never it. have. But I'm saying it's a rule. I'm saying okay, it's a rule. You, it's a, yeah, it, it's yeah. definitely a DGA you, rule. I am not allowed to, to show, show anything. So I'm just referencing yeah. your question yeah, when course. you said when I'm showing it to viewers, I'm showing it to the director and the director only. Mm -hmm. And if he decide he or she decides to oh, show that's it, a, so you, so even if an executive isn't allowed into no way. I did not know that. An executive is not allowed to look at any cuts of the scene of anything until it's, until it's the delivered. director's cut or until the director decides. So when you guys deem an assembly an assembly, then it can be sent out as an assembly cut or when it when, when it's, it's no, a, it's never an assembly. Uh, it's always a rough. The director's cut is the director's cut, and that's the first time usually they show it to the studio. It's just usually 10 weeks after the wrap of the movie. Oh, I see. So the, so and those the, are DGA rules. Those are DGA rules. So the so an executive can't actually demand to see a rough cut? No. This is total news to me. No. I, mean, we're DGC. I mean, they can do whatever they want. They can demand. But usually the director would pick up the phone and call the DGA. And there's times when there's a good relationship, you know, where... An executive's on the set, and I've sent a scene over to the director, and he sees it, and he likes it, and he wants to get the studio on their side, and says, come here, look at this, you know, look at the fight scene in the lab here, look at, you know, and that gets people excited about it. So it's up to the director when he wants to step over his own rights, essentially. But technically, the director has 10 weeks before... They show anything to the studio. Most, I would say, show it earlier, like maybe six weeks in, just to start getting feedback. These days, every film has visual effects, and you have to start. Those have to be approved by the studio because they're expensive, and they spend a lot of money. So if it, there's a big visual effects scene, you do have to show that and get it approved by mm -hmm. producers yep. and executives. Yep. Tell us about your, you mentioned special effects, I just wanted to zoom in on that for a second, because you've worked on some pretty special yeah, effects. Yeah, we call it visual effects, but okay. Sorry. Sorry. I'm a teacher as well, so I'm Clearly. always correcting people. <laughs> it's okay. It's special okay. effects are situations on a set, on a set yeah. where it's rain or Practical. wind or snow, and they always lead to visual effects, because you're always adding it all later right. in visual effects. Because whatever right. they did in camera just couldn't be good enough, right? Or, or they decide, let's put this whole scene in snow, and... Let's add snow to everything, and let's make this whole scene after the earthquake. And you know what? Dust. I know we shot in Arizona in the summer, but I really think we should VFX this. It's amazing yeah. how 
It's amazing <laughs> how people just think you can do anything in visual effects, and you can't. You, you, you can, but it costs time and money, and it can look really bad. The look on your face was amazing because the minute we started unpacking the VFX, sorry, no, and no, it's great. That's you that's going see in the cut. What I mean, people you know. are saying these some days on film. What's the most ridiculous request? You don't have to name the project. You don't have to name the sequence. You just you can just tell me like it was like this, and I was at, I was told we're going to do that. <laughs> okay, this wasn't a director. It was a studio executive yes. who wanted to reshoot an end of a scene that the scene took place like on a lake in Canada that was covered with snow and snow-capped mountains behind it and he wanted to shoot pickups and reshoot it in this like mud puddle on the lot <laughs> literally like 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 a, they called it the pond it had some bamboo around it you know, and it was like, and you can just add snow and add the mountains later, you know? <laughs> it, 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 was, it was pretty funny. So what did you say? Were you sitting there going... Well, like, actually, the, um, the, the, the director and I were in the... It was a whole big room full of people, and the director, when we walked out, the director turned to me and said, I thought Ashton Kutcher was going to be here, and we were punked, you know? I thought... <laughs> I thought that was all just a joke. <laughs> this is the stuff that dreams are made of. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, on that on that subject, what is the what is the uh, the dumbest editing note you've ever received? Huh. I I can't really say there is a. I can't. I can't. There's too many to name. No, I don't think. In all honesty, I, I think an awful lot of editing notes are smart. I, oh, I, okay. I, I really do. Yeah, yeah. I I uh, I think it's a myth that that studio executives are stupid. I think they're 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 who most of the time they're intelligent. And I do say most of the time, but but I mean eighty five ninety percent of the time the studio executives are well read, smart, uh, in, in funny intellectual people who know how to make movies and interact with movies the way an yeah. audience does and have an emotional investment it's, it's refreshing, in it's refreshing to hear you say that. And they're yeah. on your side. Yeah. At least that's been my experience, is that it doesn't have to be a battle. And I think the people that go in expecting it to always be a battle. And again, I think there are, time, there are times when it's a battle. You're saying it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think so. Yeah. I think so. And, well, it's, and, it's refreshing and, and to hear you say And it that. can be very collaborative, and I have worked on a lot of films where those studios are extremely supportive and, behind, and very creative and, and, and behind the director's vision yeah. and willing to put money into the director's vision. And so I think it's... It's, it's, I, I think, you know, again, I teach at UCLA Film School, and I think a lot of people come out and go, I'm ready to do battle with the studio. And it's like, that's not, I don't think that's the right way to start off right. with that kind of attitude. Right, right. So, I mean, I'll, talk, I'll address your question with another, the, what's the dumbest editing note? And this isn't the dumbest editing note, but the most common editing note 
that you get is get the story started faster. Get the story started faster. Get the story started faster. They want, the, they want faster. the first ten minutes chopped off the movie. Yeah. Every time. So all the character development, you know, get but, it, get it started faster. Let's just and I call this the get it, get her to Oz faster note because this was a note that was given on the Wizard of Oz. Really? By the studio executives, apparently, who were like, just get her to Oz faster. Just get Dorothy to Oz faster. We really don't. I really think that Over the Rainbow song is killing us. So they wanted to take out the Somewhere Over the Rainbow song. Can you sing that song for her? No, I okay, can't. Okay, fine, fine. <laughs> I, I, I think it's a great comment. To be fair, to be fair about, in the same way you're talking about that a lot of the time executives are, because some of the time the executive is just coming from a place of being in the seat with the popcorn and saying, I wish it was more like this. And I wish, and, and you're sitting there, in, in the director's in the trenches, the editor's in the trenches, yes. everyone's in the trenches, and, and, and it's like, what, but that we can't do that. But it's that freedom from the shackles of being in the trenches that allows the vision or the, the comment to come out that says, can't we just do this? Right. Right. And so that's what you're talking about, is that sometimes those thoughts, as annoying as they may be, because... They're very know, general, but sometimes you put them in your head and you process them. And it makes it better. And you say, we don't, was never shot to do that, and we don't really have footage that looks like that, but I can address the spirit of that note... The spirit of ...with it. this. Look at right. that, you know? Right. And they'll look at it and go... And so, so sometimes... Sometimes people give you notes and they go, can't you be on her close up there and trim that shot and do this? And what, and, and what you want to know as the editor is, what's the spirit of the note? Exactly. You know, what do you, you want it to be more romantic. You want them to feel more confident. You want whatever. What's the spirit behind it that is something that needs to work in the overall film? Right. So... You clearly have a very collaborative and not collaborative is the wrong word. You have a very, you know, collaborative is a collaborative, good word. collaborative, but also <laughs> I would say pragmatic approach that you're you're trying to get there through a holistic and, and, a, and a spiritual means, but well, you're you know, you're trying to implement what the ideas are. Well, yeah. Well, I work, you know, I work for the director. I am yeah. I am trying to. Uh, express the director's vision but the medium through which the director is mostly communicating with me is by the footage is what got shot right so uh just going back to your dorothy note (laughs) nobody is it's great it's just it's interesting because a lot of the time that thought is correct that the beginning of the movie is dragging. Yes. It happens all the time. Oh, yes. I'm and not then, denying that it's... Yeah. A, I'm not saying it's a bad note. And, but then but then you have those movies where the first act really is really compelling. Yeah. And it might be a long first act. It yeah. might be a 30-minute yeah. first act or 35 or whatever it is. Yeah. And it's completely compelling. Yeah. But out of insecure... Not insecure. Familiarity or habit, they go, oh, we got to get there faster. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, so, then, and, then, and then you have to... Then it's tricky. It's tricky right. because they're like saying it needs momentum, it needs momentum, and you know, it, you need the audience to invest in the character, and if they don't invest in the character, there can't be momentum. So you have to try to do both. You have to try to figure out a way to uh, make sure the right beats are in there so that people will invest in the character, but you're still getting through it faster. Let's talk about, um, you, keep, you, you, you know, obviously you mentioned servicing the director's vision and 
we can hear in your voice that you're completely genuine about it. It's like it's like the, it's like <laughs> the thing you know. So. It's like, you know, cinematographers say it, composers say it, yeah. editors say it, and they they mean it. But some you know, but a lot of the time you know, people don't realize to what degree they're bringing their own sure. view to the view sure. to the table. Sure. Can you give us an example of a film that you were editing where? the director's vision revolutionized your understanding of it, where all of a sudden trying the things that they wanted to try in the way they wanted to try them, you went, oh, I, you know, I never saw it like that. That's great. No. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I mean, oh, it was okay. always kind of obvious. It's usually obvious uh-huh. from the footage, you know? So you have an instinct based on what you see. It sort of leads you. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that. And some, let's get into let's get into the specifics. I mean, because there's hundreds of ways you could cover a scene. You, you know that the director yeah. could could choose to do the coverage. It could be all, you know, Catherine Hardwick, for example, with Elliot Davis. It's yeah. all usually handheld sweeping shots. So uh, you can you can you can cut it. You can play it all in one. You can uh, whatever. There's there's options. Uh, yeah, but you're not going to use the close-ups and the over-the-shoulders because you don't have them. <laughs> so the style of the way it's shot, yeah. to some extent, dictates... I, I, like I always have a problem when people say, um, I want this kind of editorial style. We're hiring you because of this editorial style. And we want I don't the lining. think I have right. an editorial style. My editorial style is going to be dictated by... The shooting style. What's there? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, about your films, about the films you, you okay. edited. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, what was the first major milestone for you as a picture editor? Stand and deliver. Right. The we, first and we, film. We've interviewed Tom Richmond. Oh, you have. Yes, who I oh, absolutely so adore. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I asked him specifically about the heart attack sequence. Uh huh. You know, when Edward G is almost yeah. uh, walking down the. Tripping on the floor because of such a beautifully done, huh. a beautifully done sequence. Um, <laughs> he said about the movie that, if I'm remembering correctly, and I think I am, he said about it that their goal was to that him and I'm going to edit out me not remembering the name of the director. Ramon Menendez. Ramon Menendez. That the goal between him and Ramon was to. Make the classroom itself as mundane as like they would cover the windows. They would they wanted the classroom to be completely unpicturesque, right. right. so that the focus of this kind of you know Rene style shooting, um, uh, not Rene, uh, what's his name, pickpocket. Pardon my language. I don't know. Anyway, that it's sort of French classic formal. Right. You know what would be would be the focus would be would be. Edward James almost. Right. So, what you know? What, what were the structural challenges of editing that movie, if you can remember? Yeah, it's a long time ago. Um, that's an interesting question. Well, shooting a classroom is a little tough because it's a confined space and b there's a lot of opportunity to just to cross the line. So you have to make sure the eye lines are all correct. And Tom was amazing in in that, where I would be looking at the footage and I would go, oh no, I can't use that, they crossed the line, they crossed the line, oh no. And then the last shot, 
of the day that they shot Would was be. always a shot that allowed me to use all the other shots. Where the camera moved or somebody looked the yes. other right. Okay, yes, fine. yes. And Tom was obvi- always totally aware of it and knew exactly what he was doing, and it was fantastic. Um, but structurally, we did have issues that we addressed in editorial in that the film, there were, there were two things. The film... Our first assembly of it, and that was cut on film, so sad. Um, it didn't really have an ending initially. Really? Didn't really have an ending. It just ended in an office where Edward James almost got the news that everybody had passed and what their scores were, and this was a four and this was a five, and then he walked down the hall, and that was it. And so you didn't feel the impact of this victory on the kids. So that was the first issue. And the second issue was uh, in the in the one when they were accused of cheating, you didn't feel the impact of it on the kids enough as a community. And uh, we, Tom, actually, I think, was the person that came up with the idea of for the ending, use shots of the kids from the first time we met them, like the dumbest time, when they looked the dumbest of whatever they were in the film, and put the voice of the guy reading the scores, you know, it's just a principal on a phone saying, Maria Diaz, four. And you cut to Maria who's sitting like in a chair in the front of the room looking like a dunce, you know? But she got a four. So you and, basically made the art. And the, and the Lou Diamond Phillips one, I remember distinctly he'd been shot against a blackboard. He had to stand against a blackboard because he was in trouble and being shot against this blackboard that was all art-directed. And the art department had art-directed it for the wrong day, so we could never use it for the scene that it was meant for because it was a continuity issue. But we got to use it in, the, in that last moment. So it was Lou Diamond Phillips against the wall, like counting his looking fingers or something, looking being, totally dumb and right. lost, and yeah. So that became this beautiful little arc to. to so the the way that was just a, yeah, yeah. It totally worked. It totally worked, and it worked better than. Even shooting a scene. If they'd been, all run to the beach and you know. Held them up on their shoulders. Gotten or drunk or yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> it worked much better. And the other issue we also addressed editorially, which is we took a scene that was a character development scene between Lou Diamond Phillips and his gang friend, uh, and we moved it later. And it was just weird how it, it was a scene where they get in trouble with the cops, and Lou Diamond Phillips is basically being really cynical, saying, you know, we don't have any lives, and the stars aren't really there. And, uh, and and when we took that and moved it later, it played out, instead of a character-establishing scene, it played out as, as I, like, a beat of disillusionment because of the so, accusation of cheating. So, okay, so let's just... So the let's whole just, context of the scene right, yeah. was colored by... So the scene is... The scene beca- what the scene was was an establisher for Lou Diamond Phillips. Yeah, that and he was in be- a gang and then he got in trouble. And, and what it became was him sort of all starting to come around. What it became was him him uh, instead talking to his gang buddy about 
seemed you just got the sense that he was disillusioned, and then and then he and then he heckles some cops, and so they sort of feel like he's a little self-destructive because he's because he's disappointed, disappointed that he's been accused of cheating. So it was it, it was interesting. And the scene didn't have to change. It was literally just she taking did. the scene out of here and putting it over there. Yeah. And and because yeah. of the thesis antithesis. Because synthesis. of the context, you read it differently. This is like an example of the Kuleshov effect, almost in, yes. in, in, a, in a scene, yes. in a scene context. Yes, it's like, it is. You know, because it is. what we saw before influenced what we see. It's all about there. the Kuleshov effect. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do you live by that sort of in a way? I think it, it's it's all about juxtaposition of you know you, yes yes all day long. You can take a shot of an actor, you know, when they're when they're breathing to prepare before. The scene. Before they slate and move it, and people are always saying, we don't have a shot of of her looking like that's really bothering her. And you can sometimes find it in these really weird places. And you kind of... You kind of but, but, and I you, mean, and, the best part about what you're talking about is you're talking about editing. You know, there's an old exp expression. You write one, you shoot one, you cut one. You, write, you know, the, the yeah. different films. And the best editors, like yourself, I'm not trying to blow smoke, but <laughs> the best editors, like yourself, um, see what the movie can be, and they find it, and they build, and they make it. You know. Yeah, I think when I'm working on a scene, I have it pretty firmly in my head what it can be. Right. You know what emotion it needs to evoke, what it needs to feel like, what. Uh, what what the audience should be feeling. Right. That's a great story about to. moving that scene. So did it, even a frame change in the scene when you moved I it? I don't remember. It but, must but have, but I don't know. It's kind of irrelevant. The point is that the scene yeah. was this, but then by virtue of moving it to yeah. later in the story, yeah. Yeah. changed, revolutionized the, the whole... It, it, it solved a problem. Right. It solved a story hole. You know, I mean, there might have been a better scene to shoot for that story hole, but... It that did pretty did did pretty well. Did pretty well. You almost let it slip there. The F bomb. No, I was just almost about to say that it did pretty fine, and then I said oh, it was so bad. I'm sorry. I hope you cut that out. Was it fine? <laughs> Which part? Me accusing you, or no, me <laughs> saying that? <laughs> okay, let's flash forward. Next major milestone. Well, I mean, you started working with Catherine Hardwick, but between Stand and Deliver and working with Catherine Hardwick, on yeah, 13, I did the next film I did after. Um, Stand and Deliver was a film for Charles Burnett called To Sleep With Anger. That yeah, was, which I haven't, I can't comment on. I haven't it's seen a it. wonderful film. Okay. It was with Danny Glover and all African-American cast. And uh, it was recently it restored. It, Danny Glover plays this, uh, this, this guy from the deep south mm -hmm. who comes to visit some old friends who now live in South Central Los Angeles, the whole family, and the family's got their issues. Um, one of the brothers is sort of in trouble, and it's just mother, father, two grown sons, and their kids, and just a, a family. And this, and this, and this guy comes in the deep, deep south, and he's sort of a uh, cultural, an African-American folkloric figure of sort of a... Uh, a soothsayer almost? No, not a soothsayer, no. but a troublemaker. 
Oh, he plays a trouble. He, yeah, he, he's going to yeah. stir up trouble. Yeah, so he kind of, sort of, yeah, he's going to stir up trouble, and he comes in, and there's there's all this sort of a little bit of um, not voodoo, but uh, cultural mythology in it from that community where people have these little good luck pieces, and there's this and these things, and he comes. This Danny Glover comes and. Uh, he just stirs up trouble. He gets one of the one of the sons gambling and drinking, and that causes all kinds of problems. It's 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 a it's a really great, fantastic, compelling movie that ends up with a big earthquake. Was there a major battle in cutting in editing that movie, or <sighs> not? No, that I mean that. The battle with that movie was very low budget, and we just didn't have very much footage. But I thought the director did a wonderful job, and all the actors did a wonderful job, and it won the Spirit Award that year. Oh, that's great! Danny Glover won, and Cheryl Lee Ralph, one of the actresses, she won Best Act. It it's it swept the Independent Spirit Awards, and it won a Special Jury Award at Sundance, and. Um, I, I, I love the movie. It was just recently restored, and it was at the UCLA Film Archive. They had a screening of it in the context of this festival called L.A. Rebellion that was African-American filmmakers that came out of UCLA in the 70s. Awesome. It's really interesting. So that was a great project. I sort of did... I did... I would do... A Latino film like Stand and Deliver, and then there was an African American film mm-hmm. like To Sleep with Anger. Mm-hmm. And the next I did Me Familia with mm-hmm. Gregory Nava, it was mm-hmm. a Latino film. And then next I did an African American film called, um, I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I went, I, went, I went back and forth between the minority films for a while. I sort of, you know, you get, you get typecast. Right. As an editor, you get typecast the same way. You're typecast doing anything. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I was bizarre. the minority yeah. editor, and yeah. literally I would come into offices to interview, and people go, oh, I thought you were black. Sorry. Huh. And Maya really? Angelou hired me. Did you ever say, oh, no, I am? No, oh, I didn't. Okay. Should have tried. But but I was hired by Maya Angelou to cut her directorial debut, which was a film called Down in the Delta. And she hired me over the phone, and I had to cut the film at her house in North Carolina. And my assistant and I showed up, literally on her doorstep, and, and she knocked like, on her door, you? and she opened the door and went, oh, I didn't know what you were going to look like. And I could tell she expected me to be African-American. Uh, but, the, but that was kind of a great... I'm not complaining about having no, been no, typecast. No. I, you know, I cut uh, Me Familia and then Selena for Greg Nava and then all African American cast, White of Fools Fall in Love, yep. Down in the Delta. Um, and really my first white movie <laughs> was 13 with Catherine Hardwick. Amazing. I think. White of Fools Fall in that. Love. I saw that picture. Yeah. What's the picture about it? I'm sorry. It was three uh, beautiful African-American women, Halle Berry, who who all uh, claimed to be married to, I can't remember the name of the 
Frankie Lyman. Yeah. It's the Frankie Lyman story. Right. But it's three women who all claim they're married to him and are claiming some part of his estate. Estate. Right. That was a fun picture. Yeah. Let's talk about Thirteen because Thirteen, yeah. Thirteen kind of put a foot through, through cinema. You know, it, it, it left a mark. Yeah. Um, and you watch it. I, I did watch it recently because we also interviewed Elliot. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it's, it really holds up. Like it, it, it just it's it, it, like any great piece of cinema it holds up, it stands. Yeah. Um, the opening, the very opening with the with the with oh. the slapping across yeah. the face. Yeah. Which happens later in the story. Right. It's sort of. Structured. Structured. Was that an editorial decision? No, that way it was written that way. It was written that way. The script was written that way. And Nikki Reed wrote this when she was like 15 years older. With Catherine, yeah. Okay, so she did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did they find each other and start? Catherine was dating Nikki's father for a really, really long time. And so Catherine actually refers to Nikki as her fake daughter. And Catherine has a couple of fake daughters. Oh, really? And, uh, that type of a personality. Because she dated their fathers, and she was with Seth Reed for a long time. So I think she had known Nikki since she was really, really little. Um, coincidentally, Nikki's father is now married to another friend of mine. <laughs> but um, so I know everyone that Seth has ever dated. Like all the his first wife, Nikki's mom, Catherine, and now Nikki's new stepmom. So but you're really Nikki's. I'm part of the family. Mother. I'm part of their family. Right. So I met Nikki when she was maybe eleven, but I think Catherine met her when she was six or five or something like that. So Is she that... knew her for a really long time, and they were. And when uh, was there ever discussion about Nikki playing the Evan Rachel Wood character? Or was it always, did she always want to be the, not antagonist, but I think that they knew she wasn't at that point. She couldn't. She wasn't that innocent girl anymore. Right, right. She was going to be the other one. This movie's really interesting to me, narratively, because it's kind of like, you talk about Get Her to Oz, going back to that note. There usually is a clean... Break. Okay, here you know this character runs into this situation, and now everything turns upside down. Right. And it happens like that. Thirteen, kind of just develops into yeah. that. Like you don't really see it coming. You know what I mean? Like it. You know. Well, but you know it's coming because of that first. Because scene. Of that first scene, exactly. The structure. Yeah. So. But even as it's happening. By you know, you know when you see that first scene, you go, "Oh my God, what are these girls doing?" Yeah. And then it cuts, and you see Evan Rachel Wood, you know, a few months earlier, really, going, Mom! And looking like she's a kid instead of... And it was a very carefully crafted, slow development of Evan Rachel Wood's character in terms of wardrobe and walk and behavior and sunglasses. I remember this scene where Catherine was upset because the sun, the sunglasses she'd been given that day were sort of too cool and it was too early in her character development for her to be wearing those sunglasses. But it is in, it is in the film that way. <laughs> but so it, it, was, it was very 
meticulous very almost. meticulously planned yeah. in terms of wardrobe and hair and makeup and so you couldn't in that movie you couldn't it was harder it was a whole lot harder to move scenes around because you would upset that carefully planned was there challenges in I mean Elliot Davis told us about shooting the whole thing handheld on the lightweight yeah. zooms and all that stuff yeah did that pose other like mi micro challenges as opposed to macro challenges uh, nothing can separate the two. Well, it was interesting because there was coverage on that film. I mean, I mean, I mean, Catherine had done this incredible job of setting up all the actors in a house where they yeah. stayed in that house, and the house was furnished and it had, you know, dishes in the cupboards and silverware in the drawers, and Holly Hunter and the son, the daughter, Nikki, they all stayed in that house yeah. before they started to shoot, and began relationships that were foundations of their characters' relationships. They stayed in the house. Yeah. And so... Holly Hunter's performance, by the way. Incredible. Like, and, and, so, and so the blocking, everything, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're in one house and people have to move from one room to another and to another. So Elliot shot it. It was... Things were always covered in one take. There would maybe be seven, eight takes of a master shot. And then there would be coverage. There would be a tighter shot on somebody that would also pan over there, that would also do this. So, so there was coverage that you could choose from, but, but the camera was shaky enough that there were a lot, very early on, like I would do a cut, and then I would go, I think we should play this in one. <laughs> like, here's a cut, here's the cut version, but here it is all in one, because the camera gave you the feeling that things were being cut. Sometimes there was these little zooms that were, felt like the equivalent of a jump cut. Right. And so you had to pull back, literally, on the editing because it was too much. It was much. already done for you. It was, the, the impression of editing was already there. And there was that great, 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 great shot where the girls go next door and they yep. kind of flirt with the guy next door and they smoke pot and they dance and then they come back over. It was all one shot. It was all one incredible shot. Just amazing. I didn't even think about it. It was amazing. Yeah. It goes between houses. Yeah. Um, I didn't even think about it. You're out. And, you know, there was coverage. We could have cut it up. But, but, but when with, you had right. it in one shot... Did and, you jump cut, by the way? Yeah, well, there's lots of jump cuts right. in the movie. but um, And there's lots of weird little speed-ups and slow-downs and freeze-frames and... Depending on where you were in the story and how crazy things were. Mm -hmm. And we were, both the shooting style and the editing style were conscious of, again, a character arc where sometimes there were places early on in the movie where Elliot had, say, done these little snap zooms and I would experiment around trying to cut them and cut them with snap zooms and then we'd look at it and we'd go, this is too early in the movie where it shouldn't feel this crazy. It can feel this crazy at the end, where they're on Hollywood Boulevard, or when they come home and have the big family fight, or things like that. So it was a conscious uh, build, or you know, way of staying calmer through the beginning and building in everyone's style, in, in, in wardrobe, in terms of color, color timing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Editorial style, shooting style, yep. 
as the film progressed, things got hairier, weirder. Right. Yeah. Which you feel. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question about sound, about dialogue, editing dialogue, and it's it's kind of a loaded question and a and a long-winded question. So just indulge me for a second. Okay. And, it, it, you know, it's it's a, a very common technique to take the the, the 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 sound from one take and put it in the mouth of the actor in another take because you like the the tonality. Sometimes you can't notice it when you're watching it. It just it fits perfectly. And sometimes it's there's almost a dissonance between you know the person talking like this and the person talking like this, but it still works because the dissonance between the two, sort of, even though it's it's. If it, 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 it to most viewers, it's completely subconscious. They don't notice right. it. Even to the person who notices it, it's not really. It, it kind of works. It it, it 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 has a settling right. aspect to it. My, the example that I use from one movie that I don't think you edited, I'm pretty sure you didn't, was um, Usual Suspects. Uh, I think at one point with Kevin Spacey in the office, he says, "How do you shoot the devil in the back? What happens if you miss?" And it's clearly the sound from another take, hmm. but it works really well, right? Hmm. Or ADR. Yeah, or ADR, yeah, yeah, yeah it could yeah. be, ADR. of course, it could yeah. be ADR, yeah, yeah. Um, um, was, is there any, do you employ that a lot on? I don't. Uh, there's always times where you cheat a take uh -huh. in someone's mouth because the sound was bad or you like the performance better, but yeah. I can't say I do it a lot. Uh -huh. I do it three or four times in a given film. But it that's does... A, that's actually not a lot. That's really... It's not yeah, a lot. At all, yeah. But uh, unfortunately, ADR has done a lot. <laughs> 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 and that is simply because uh, nobody pays attention to sound on a set, which is, you know, like... like the sound guy is the last uh, priority. Sorry, Alexis. Sorry. And uh, so they'll pick a lake location that's next to a waterfall or a freeway or something so that yeah. you just have that sound and, 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 and you end up having to loop it. And there, there was a movie that I did with Catherine Hardwick where uh, Lords of Dogtown, yeah. where I think the whole first third of the movie was looped. I think we okay, were 20 that, minutes. That, that answers my question because I love the movie. I think we're 20 but minutes into the it movie. It feels like, yeah. And and I could feel it when we were on the dubbing stage. It Just wasn't that it didn't work, yeah. but it gave the whole beginning of the film this literally a disembodied quality. Ethereal. Yeah. Trent. Which which which. Which I think worked. I mean, we didn't have a choice. <laughs> it was just the skating noises and everything, or. You mean that all the skating noises were all added afterwards? Oh, but I'm I mean what, the dialogue. Why did it need to be ADR in the first place? Just just, just w waves, you know, crashing waves. You couldn't understand people's dialogue. Uh, Wetsuits, you know, it's hard to mic people. There were just a million different sound challenges between where things think it was traffic on the streets and yeah the kids had to be on skateboards but mics so there's just a lot of sound thrown out right um let's talk a little bit about twilight because we have to i mean we can't okay. have you here and not talk about a blockbuster <laughs> franchise film we can't not do it this, this movie is interesting to me because i think and this have is, you seen it of course I have. Oh, okay. Um, well, I, it's, it's tough. It's a movie that I wouldn't actually normally go to see out of my own taste. 
you know, out of my own taste. But because I try and see the blockbusters as well. Right. You know, like sure. I still saw all three Transformers and. Right. A good comparison. I'm just gonna. No, 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 no. I think I think I think that uh, you know. Anyway, no, I don't think they're in the same plane. Um, just to ask about this film, if I may be so bold as to infer, Catherine Hardwick's sensibility does come off on the picture. Oh yeah. In a very significant way. Like there are sequences in there that you know, on a more general studio level, or you know, more gen. You know, you bring the more general studio sensibility for whatever that means it would have looked a lot different and felt a yeah. lot different yeah how did you deal with i mean the thing that always jumps out to me is this the scenes with the with the fast running and the oh, ramping yeah. and all this it looks so like bizarre like it's not I like know. there's no attempt to like make it like you know like like whatever you know again like no st- it, it just feels so raw and kind of thrown and and there and fast and quick and and and, and kind of you know, loose in a, in a camera way, like kind of a loose camera style. Were you guys excited to, to sort of cut that, put that Are together? you talking about, like, the baseball scene? That, too, yeah, the baseball. But also when Robert Pattinson takes uh, uh, Kristen Stewart and is running through the, through the forest. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. Well, some of that was shot in camera. Right. Uh, we didn't ramp it in post. Some of it was shot at 22 frames in camera. But you still didn't go back to the, to the, to the, the you know, to, you guys didn't go back and say we want to shoot extra, whatever. You used what was there. I mean, get more VFX or... Uh, I can't, in all honesty, that kind of stuff I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Some of those things were shot second unit. Yep. Okay, because there's... Sorry, they're stunt doubles. <laughs> um, no you know, and so they were shot at different speeds and different, and sometimes they were uh, wire work, where yep. where yep. Uh, where there was a wire on the stunt guy and he was literally lifted up the hill, so he looked more like he was not actually running but yep. more flying. So it was visual effects. It was wire removal and. And those were ways that the scenes were envisioned. I mean, it was tough in the book to, like, oh, what is this going to look like? He's carrying her and and running, you know? So it was tough. So it was really... um, In the editing process, it was always just trying to make it look as weird and magical and different as possible, kind of. Um, For me, the baseball scene was just really, really fun. It was it, it it was just fun to ramp that a lot uh, that the ramping was done in post production so it was speeding things up and slowing things down and you know oh that that you ramped yeah yeah let me ask yeah. something why does that scene sequence uh-huh. work I don't know I just I don't know I love it <laughs> no, but I mean like you're in the middle of the movie about this well if, you know for a vamp yeah. <laughs> what what I like to say is. It's really one of the best vampire baseball scenes ever made. <laughs> family baseball scenes ever made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's be clear. It's baseball. not just a vampire family. baseball scene. It's a family. I mean, that was shot. At, it's just so bizarre. Um, I mean, you got this family of vampires playing a baseball game, you know, to welcome the girl into the family. Here's our family outing. We're going to go play baseball. And they're running at 300 miles an hour. I it's, know. It's, I, I love it. But it's it. got like a certain heart to it where you yeah. actually believe the characters yeah. are doing this, you know. 
And you know, I think we knew we liked it when. Uh, was he never considered cutting the scene, or was no. it not? It wasn't even a consideration. No, you know, we never usually. Usually, with most films, you do what they call audience previews, where yeah. you show it to a bunch yeah. of strangers at a cineplex somewhere. Yeah. And uh, with Twilight films, they don't do that because the fan base is so vocal and uh, insistent on loyalty to the book, and the just the, suddenly they will discuss everything right, and. Right. And as when we, when Twilight was first being shot, it, the the books were not, the books were growing into the phenomenon they became, but they weren't right at the beginning. And as the f movie was being shot, there was suddenly like 150 websites, and oh my god, like and you know, and and honestly, the first version of the script that was shot, there was no meadow scene. And we'd go on to some of these websites, and Catherine would go, wow, they're all saying they hope we didn't mess up the meadow scene. <laughs> and we better, we don't have a meadow scene. So and that's when you go to the back lot and shoot the puddle. Well, we actually <laughs> shot the meadow scene in Griffith Park here in Los oh, really? Angeles. Yeah, much later. And not, not shot in Oregon. Looks more like a Vancouver, Oregon type of a, you know. Yeah, the movie was shot in Portland. Yeah. Yeah. But... Uh, so we, during the making, during post-production, Catherine became very aware of, we're going to really have to be loyal to the book because these fans are dedicated to the books. So it's just one day I remember her saying, okay, so we were working on a specific scene. She said, okay, let me just read this scene in the book and see how close we are. And, she, and then she turned page after page after page. And it was about a 45-second scene. She goes, this is a 30-page scene. <laughs> so there were times when it was just like, okay, we think this scene does what it needs to do for the book. Um, the vampire baseball scene ha just had to be there. It was part of her uh, meeting that family. And I think we, when we, we wouldn't have test screenings of the film, but we would show it to like friends and family and like... The, the daughters of people who worked at the studio, and they would all come and, you know, you get this little 13-year-old girl who would go, well, the vampire baseball scene is just so well done. And so, so you knew. You knew you, knew, you, knew you were going to be okay if they were saying that. That's fantastic. Um, but they all seemed the to really like all the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. they all seemed to really like the scenes when Bella was going over to meet the family. Yep. And the awkwardness of meeting the family, but it's a family of vampires. How hard was it to craft the 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 the? Because this is always the thing that blows my mind: the the chemistry between Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart. Because that's tangible. Yeah. And I mean, I know that they ended up, they're like off screen, they ended up in a relationship. But they weren't point. in a relationship during that first one. Right. Yeah. And she had another, she had a boyfriend. Oh, well, that's great. That just adds to it. You know? Yeah. Kristen had a boyfriend. And I think Rob fell in love with Kristen right away. I think, from looking at those dailies. <laughs> but I thought there was tangible, tangible, uh, not just chemistry, but I really loved cutting those scenes between Rob and Kristen. I just, there was just, I mean, Rob looked so amazing. The way Elliot made him look and the way he looks. And he looks like an alien vampire in that film, even though that's, like, you just, you could just, I just felt like 
there were shots I could just stare at him for hours, and maybe this is my teenage girl coming out. Do you have a crush on Robert Pattinson? No, I don't. Um, and then Kristen has this, that teen angst that when you're reading it as teen angst comes through so perfectly, and the combination of those things. The first scene where they meet and they're sitting next to each other, and yep. she doesn't know what the hell, why is he looking at her so weird, and he's, who knows what he's thinking, and I, I just, it's like it was crack. just a great time. Yeah. I just yeah. had a great time cutting that scene. You know, it just worked every way you cut it. It worked. That's great. Yeah, it was really, really, really fun. You think they should get back together? Are they broken up? Uh, oh, oh, they are back together. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm really not up on my tabloids. I don't, I don't, they're, they're back. So I the U-Haul story, that together. was a fake. I heard somebody actually put a U-Haul, like some... Oh, that was a paparazzi time ago. put a U-Haul in front of the house just to make it look like somebody was moving. It's pathetic. Ages ago, sorry, I'm, I'm waiting. Yeah, and by the time we're going to screen this, it's Miley and Liam that are broken up now. Sorry. Really? Right? <laughs> <laughs> I worked on that movie too. Which by one? The, way. Uh, the last song in which Miley and Liam met. Yeah. And I did Step Up, which Channing Tatum and his wife met. Let's talk so about I Step like Up. To do, we, 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 I like to do the movies where the leads fall I forgot up. about Step Up. We, we, <laughs> we, we have to do something right now, the two of us. We have to do it. You to, me to my camera, you to yours. What? Spirit Fingers. <laughs> no, I'm not doing come on, that. Come on, no. come on, do it. Just do it. I, what is Spirit Fingers? Spirit Fingers. What is that? No, that wasn't in Step Up. No, it was in another dance movie. Okay. I'm just... No, Since yeah. I got the lovers wrong, I figured I would. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, t step up. So tell us about cutting Step Up. Uh, Unless you don't. Okay, want. no, it was totally fun. That was the director. That was Ann Fletcher. Yeah. It was her first film. She was a choreographer. I read the script and I thought this is kind of like a mixture of every dance movie <laughs> that's ever been made, but it seems like it would be really fun. Yeah. yeah. And I met Ann and. She liked me, and uh, then I, whatever, didn't know if I'd gotten the job. I went off to Europe on a trip and got a call that I'd gotten the job, so yeah. it was it was great. And they were cutting in Baltimore. I was in Los Angeles, so it was a little... Just, just tell us what the movie's about again, just recap this uh, Channing Tatum plays a, a kind of wrong side of the tracks kid who, who uh, he and his... African American brothers, kind of in a uh, go sneak into a performing arts school and trash a theater and get get caught, get in trouble, uh, have to do public whatever. Channing is the only one that admits to the crime because he's white and he'll get off easier. So he has to do like I don't know what do you call it public service. public service public service, yeah. which is he's got to work at the school. Now, had you ever um, cut a dance? I mean, this is like a dance, you know. Uh, well, I cut Selena. Uh, okay. And I cut this little Disney dance movie called Gotta Kick It Up. I love cutting dance. I love That's my favorite thing. What do you love my about it? My absolutely favorite thing. What do you thing. love about it? Uh, you just have all this footage of usually, hopefully, a choreographed dance, yep. you know, yep. that someone has taken care to shoot really well, and you can line them all up in your head and go, what's the best part here, and what's the best part here? And just 
on Step Up there was this dancing in a club where all the kids from all the performing arts schools like basically have a choreographed dance that they all know and Channing Tatum is the outsider and he clearly doesn't know it and they're all doing this dance and you watch him learn the dance and improvise the dance and I, they shot over the course of three days so the first day I cut it and it looked great and then more footage came pouring and I was like oh more footage cut more of that in third day cut more of that and it was just like this incredibly dynamic great fantastic where you had a singer and musicians and a backup singer and everybody dancing and just this chaotic crazy club scene and my assistants would come walking through while I was cutting it and they would just I could just see them laughing and smiling every time they looked at the screen it was just so much fun it just doesn't get any better than that my job Nancy Richardson, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Okay. That was awesome. That was awesome. Your, your, your enthusiasm came right off, and that oh, was great. I want to do that again. By the way, my favorite, my favorite dance sequence, uh, what, what's your favorite dance sequence of all time in cinema? I don't know. Mine is uh, all that jazz, the uh, Oh, the, 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 the jump cuts. No, not at the beginning. I mean the one where the ex, where the oh, ex-wife comes the in to cuts. see. Oh, the, oh, yeah. Yeah, well, even when it's sort of going through the, the audition process, yeah. that's amazing. I love it's that. amazing, yeah, and, and people people being that. let down and, and let going, down. going. I did. It, it looks like it's a genuine audition me. too. I yeah. know it was yeah. fantastic. But later in the movie, there's a scene where the ex-wife comes in with the, with, right. with the child to come in and watch right, right, the rehearsal, right. oh, and it's like oh. the sexiest thing you've oh, ever seen. Oh, the airlines yeah. thing. Oh yeah, fly me that. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's incredible. And the lighting changes and everything. It's and incredible. It's, a, it's like this rehearsal hall that becomes like a set piece for both us and her and him, you know. Yeah. And then he yeah. turns her and it's just, you son of a bitch or something. Like, it's just a great... Well, when a good dance movie is telling the story through the dance scenes... Yeah. And this is true even in Selena. I think there were big production numbers where instead of just watching the song and the story stops, you had to keep the dynamics of the characters going. So... Yet it cheat shots of Selena looking over at the guitar player who was going to be her boyfriend, you know, yeah. and him looking back at her, and then the father glaring, and you know, <laughs> these are all sort of like <laughs> creating, <laughs> you know, but creating. I mean, there's a scene where that's exactly what it was, and you saw Edward James almost looking, and she's smiling at him, and these were all sort of pieced together later because. You can't just stop the story for a song to play or a dance number to happen. You have to be continuing to build the relationships. Right. I think it's the same with an action movie. You can't just stop the story for a lot of action to happen. You have to still keep the characters moving, you know, and building and growing in relationships. It's right? like the whole thing about, I mean, I think the, the, the most fundamental version of what you're talking about is when, you know, you're directing a musical is that like the good musicals make the numbers make the story keep going exactly. as opposed to just like okay we hit a point now let's just we're pause and let's, you know, yeah let's That's just right. yeah exactly, exactly yeah let's just stop exactly. the song yeah exactly anyway now that we're done let me introduce okay. you. I have to introduce you now okay yeah okay let's, let's you. okay welcome back to another oh Go ahead. we just move this to this is a little trick this is editing. Yeah, <laughs> we're restructuring. What we I just use the did. same joke on every one editor that comes in. I say, I say, I say, we, we do this little trick on editing, and like the one you like, you like, I'd say sixty percent go, oh, I've never heard of that, or make a joke out of it. But the other forty percent are like, huh. 
<laughs> like, like, not so funny. <laughs> anyway. Okie doke. Welcome back to another episode of Craft Truck in the Cut. Nancy Richardson, Master Picture Editor. Do I look at that camera or that camera? I, I, either way. Okay. Or the two Hi. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Sure. That was great. Okie doke. That was it. Cool.